The teaching this morning will end up in Isaiah 56, but we'll take a little time to get there. I I love literature and I love history, and and so uh, you get to entertain me by a little literature and a little history here, and that'll that'll lead us into Isaiah 56. Uh, Percy Shelley was one of the great British poets, still today seen as one of the preeminent of the British poets, and Shelley, along with a friend of his, Horace Smith, penned a sonnet in 1817. They were friends of each other. And there had been an archaeological discovery in Egypt which piqued their interest. And so they both wrote a sonnet, the same form of poetry, with the same title called Ozymandias. They hadn't seen the rubble that was brought to the uh, London Museum from Egypt but they'd heard about something that was found in Egypt, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, and uh, piqued their interest, and so they wanted to write about it. And let me start with Shelley's version of the poem, Ozymandias, written on news of the discovery of the remnants of a large colossal statue found in the sands of Egypt. He said this, I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Shelley hears about the discovery of the remnants of this colossal statue. And they're about the guy that you see right here in front of you. So, archaeologists had found in the sands of Egypt this rubble, and it's pieces of a statue. And this wasn't a piece of fiction, this poetry, this sonnet. It's based on a real pharaoh of Egypt. Now, Ozymandias is a Greek transliteration of his name, his throne name. But you and I would know this as Ramses the Great or Ramses II. And so this is Ramses II writ large, Here, four statues. One would have been enough for me, but he's got four of himself. These are 65 feet tall. You can get some sense of scale from the folks in front. The heads are 13 feet across. That's Ramses II or Ramses the Great. And it was a remnant of another colossal-sized statue that was found in the sands of Egypt that elicited Shelley's poem. Abu Simbel, by the way, is where this is located today. You can go here today. This is a man-made hill behind those statues. When they made the dam for the Nile River and they made the uh, Great Lake there in Egypt, the area where this was located originally is now underwater. And so they took this monumental structure apart piece by piece, put a man-made mountain behind it, and then refitted it together. But this is one of the chief tourist sites in Egypt today. By the way, too, if you're old enough or if you just watch the reruns, if you've seen the Charlton Heston movie of the Ten Commandments, you've seen Hollywood's version of Ramses the Great. 
Now listen to what Wikipedia says about this king. And you can take the picture down, guys. Thanks. At age 14, Ramses was appointed Prince Regent by his father, Seti I. He's believed to have taken the throne in his late teens, is known to have ruled Egypt from 1279 B.C. to 1213 B.C. 66 years and two months. He reigned longer, lived longer than any other Egyptian pharaoh, 91 years old. Now just for the record, I don't think Ramses was the pharaoh of the Exodus. We, we assume that's called a late date for the Exodus in the 1200s. And it presupposes basically that a lot of what you read in Joshua, for instance, is historically untrue. So the conservative date for the Exodus is 1446 B.C., and that would make Anemadep II the likely pharaoh of the Exodus. But that doesn't take anything away from Ramses, his longevity or his real power. Wikipedia continues and says, often regarded as the greatest, most celebrated, most powerful pharaoh of the Egyptian empire, his successors and later Egyptians call him the great ancestor. He led military expeditions throughout the Levant, the Middle East. He reasserted Egyptian control. He covered the land of Egypt from the delta, the Mediterranean in the north, down into the south to Nubia with buildings in a way no king before him had done. He founded a new capital city. He constructed many large monuments, including the architectural complex you saw here, Abu Simbel. He built on a monumental scale, and I thought this was interesting. This is Wikipedia's words. He built on a monumental scale to ensure that his legacy would survive the ravages of time. He erected more colossal statues of himself than any other pharaoh. He also usurped many existing statues by inscribing his own cartouche on them. And a cartouche is basically an oval with some symbols in it that represent his name. So he would go along and he would go to the ancient pharaohs from before him. He would scratch their name off and put his own name because it's all about him anyway, isn't it? So that's Ramses. Now, why did this guy go to these great lengths to make these statues? This is just a small sampling, you know. And the stuff that had fallen apart and discovered in the sand, you know, that Shelley writes about, that's just a small sample too. So why would a guy with the world at his feet, the power and the wealth of a nation, why does he go to all the trouble to make statue after statue, building after building? What in the world is behind that? You know, one would be enough, right? One big one. One gigantic one. You know, or one place with four of them. You know, if it was you or me. So what's behind that? What's with the deal this legacy Wikipedia is talking about? What in the world is going on? You know, from the time of our first parents in the garden... They're, they're in the perfect place. They have fellowship with God. You know, there's just one thing God says, hey, by the way, don't eat from that tree. And of course they do. And life to that point, probably not very long, had been perfect. And God says one thing, don't do that. And of course we know they do it. And do you remember the Scripture says their eyes were opened and it says suddenly they know that they're naked. They didn't know they were naked. They didn't know there was such a thing as naked or not naked. But their eyes are open. They know something they didn't know before. And now, whereas they'd been in this perfect fellowship with God, now they suddenly feel inadequate. 
And do you remember God calls them and what they do? They run and hide. And then before they're willing to come out and see God, do you remember what they do? They get those fig leaves, right? Our first clothing, and they stitch some of those together somehow. Probably the biggest leaves around. And then they come out to God covering their shame the best they can, right? Guys, those monuments, they're fig leaves. They're fig leaves on a large scale. But that's, that's what they are. Because all of us born in our sinful condition, Adam and Eve, our parents fell. They reproduce people just like them. When we're born, we know something, and it's this. We're not okay. We know we're not what we should be. We know we do things we shouldn't do. We know we don't do things we should do. And so we come loaded with this sense of inadequacy. It's our sinfulness. It's our shame attached to our fallen humanity. And so religion or colossal statues, these are one of the ways mankind, apart from God, goes about covering up our sense of inadequacy, our shame. If we can do something whereby we validate ourselves, we cover our shame, we cover our deficiencies, we we are able to achieve some sense of significance so that I can feel okay about myself. Those are the fig leaves, and it doesn't matter if they're real fig leaves or if they're monuments with our name on them. They amount to the same thing. Now, in the language of the Bible, what we're trying to do is to give ourselves a name. It's to write a name for ourselves, a a symbol of who we are and what we are that removes that shame, or at least that covers it up. And that if I can get other people to think I'm important and I'm significant and I'm adequate, then I can cover that up and I feel okay about myself. And the Bible calls that trying to give ourselves a name. You know, as Christians, and we'll talk about this in a minute, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. All the fig leaves, whatever they look like, they're all inadequate. And so it doesn't matter how good we are. So if you say to Ramses, Ramses, you know, you've got four statues, you've got the city, you've got the monument, you know, don't you think it's enough? And Ramses, till the day dies, no, you know, it's not enough. Got to have another one, make it bigger. Make more of them. Why? Because all our venues, all our attempts at fig leaf coverings, they're all inadequate. So it doesn't matter how many you do, how big they are, if they're stone, or if they're some less substantial substance, they all wear out and we all know it's not enough. So you've got to keep going. Christianity of all world religions is the only one that says you can't approach God, God's approached you. You don't need to create your own fig leaves. God's got something better. In Christ, God's provided something better for us. We don't have to work to get a name for ourselves because God's done that for us in Christ. God's going to give us a name. And that's, by and large, that's where we're going this morning. God gives us a name. But all these other religions, Adam and Eve in the garden, Ramses the Great, we're talking about fig leaves, coverings that will make us feel adequate because we know we're not. To have a name is a way of saying I have a reputation with others that makes me feel adequate about myself. I have a standing also, a reputation that will outlast my physical time on the earth. People will remember me in the future 
I'll remain significant beyond my own lifetime because I'll create for myself a name. You know, in political circles today, when you hear either politicians or historians or newscasters say that the president in his last term is thinking about his legacy, think the same thing, a name. Because legacy there just means, as a president or a politician at the end of my term, I'm thinking about what I can do so that history looks at me favorably. Not in the moment. The policy may be good or bad right now. I'm thinking in the future. See, I'm trying to carve myself a name. I'm putting my cartouche on this policy because I want people in the future to think well of me. Legacy in politics, it's exactly the same thing. Now, creating a name for ourselves, it goes back, it's the fig leaves originally, but when you read through the Bible, you see one story after another that brings up exactly the same theme. If you go to Genesis 11, verse 4, do you remember God had told the descendants of Adam and Eve that He wanted them to disperse across the earth and fill it up? But you've got this group in Babylon. And they say, well, Lord, we've got a a better idea than that. This is what we're going to do. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, a ziggurat, whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You remember Babylon that becomes Babel. The thought was, we don't want to be dispersed. Where's our significance? Where's our safety? But you know, if we're part of this great city with a great ziggurat that reaches to heaven, when we introduce ourselves to others, we can say, "Uh, I'm from Babylon. Where are you from? I'm from the great city, Babylon. Babylon becomes my fig leaves. We're going to stay together. We're going to create for ourselves a name. This is all of religion. This is all of humanity apart from Christ and God's real redemption. We're going to make for ourselves a name. Psalm 49 is in this same vein. This is a great psalm, by the way, about redemption generally, but also about this thought that through wealth or through mortal aspirations, I can create some enduring legacy or significance or name for myself, Psalm 49 just takes a sledgehammer and it just knocks all that down. Psalm 49, this is starting at verse 6. The psalmist is talking about his enemies here. And he says, they trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Think Ramses there. Yet these, the riches, cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God. No wealth you or I have, the wealth of Egypt, the wealth of the world, the psalmist says, no amount of wealth, no kind of wealth can actually purchase your ransom before God. You can't get there. Ramses with all his wealth couldn't get there. The price of redeeming him is too costly. One should stop trying forever so that he may live forever and not see the pit. The psalmist is saying, guys, by what we bring to the plate, we have absolutely no ability to redeem ourselves before God and to get a lasting life and lasting significance. We can't get there. The wealth of the world can't get you there. For one can see that wise men die. The wisest among us, the most brilliant, is going to die. And stupid men also pass away. See, if you've got the wealth of the world or if you're in poverty, if you're the brightest bulb or the dimmest, the psalmist says, no, you know what? We all die. 
Their graves are their eternal homes. Think of the pyramids. Think of Abu Simbel here. That's where their bodies are. From generation to generation, though they have named estates after themselves. Think of the pyramids again. Think of his name carved on all the monuments around Egypt. I carve my name on all of them. But, despite his assets, man will not last. He is like the animals that perish. Take the wealth of the world. You're the brightest, smartest thing. You've got all the fig leaves. You, you know, they're as big as you can imagine. And the psalmist says at the end of the day, it makes absolutely no difference. You die, your grave, that's it, you're done. No significance, no name, forget it. Now, Ramses, he had the wealth of Egypt, most powerful nation in the world in his day. He's got the wealth of Egypt to build with, put his cartouches on, you know, build his fig leaves. We don't have that kind of wealth, no doubt, but generally we're all about the same thing. And guys, related to I know most of us here are Christians. Great Sunday school this morning, Larry started a new series. Brought up the whole issue of, as Christians, why do we do what we do? What's the motivation behind what we do? If we don't understand that God has solved our fig leaf problem, then as Christians, our life is taken up with trying to do what God's already done. We're Ramses. And we're Adam and Eve. We're trying to find a way to, to figure out how I can feel significant. How I can cover my sense of shame and deficiency. How I can make you think I'm okay so that I think I'm okay. That's Christians. If we don't get that puzzle solved, guys, in all of our life, it's the squirrel on the cage. We're just trying to feel okay about ourselves. If you get this solved, that God gives you a name, an adequate covering, you're accepted, you're significant, then you can get on with the business of living and glorifying God. Your motivation for what you do changes. But if we don't get this, our Christian life on the earth is just fig leaf. It's just like the pagans because we don't realize what God's done for us. God gives us a name. But we should work hard at providing one for ourselves. 2 Kings 5 is the story of Naaman the Syrian who came down into Israel to get cured from leprosy. Goes to God's man Elijah and gets cured miraculously. Dips in the Jordan seven times, comes out clean. Now Naaman thought he could buy the healing. Just like Ramses, I can buy my cleansing. But he can't. Elijah says, I won't take a thing from you. Because he wants him to know this cleansing is from God and you can't buy it. Just like Psalm 49. You can't get there. But God can come to you. So Naaman's thankful, takes a little bit of dirt from Israel with him and heads home. But Elijah's got a servant named Gehazi. Gehazi's in the earlier stories with Elijah also. Gehazi's a servant and he's an errand boy to Elijah. An important guy, but Gehazi's not really got that status of prophet. So he sees Naaman going the other way, headed home with all that loot. So he follows him. He says, hey, my master light changes mind. We need a little of that. So he takes some of the wealth and he heads back. Now Elijah confronts him. Gehazi, where have you been? Oh, nowhere. Have you ever heard your kids say this? What have you been doing? Oh, nothing. What have you been doing? Nothing. So Elijah says, well, I saw you. I saw you when, I, when you went after Naaman. 
I saw you take the well. I know where you've buried it. You see, you can imagine Gehazi's a servant. He's a second fiddle. He wants to feel significant. If I get a little bit of that wealth, that Syrian guy, he's not going to know any different. And he was willing to give it all away. And my master Elijah's not smart enough to take it. I'll just take a little of that. And guys, I'm going to gain my fig leaf and my monument. Because Elijah says to him, Is it time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? This is what's going on in Gehazi's mind. I've just been a servant and an errand boy. This is my chance. I'm going to be important. I'm going to be a man of stature. I'm no longer going to be a servant. I'll have servants. I'll have orchards. I'll have the stuff. And I'll be important. And Elijah says, well, no. God's not going to play that. And he gets leprosy instead of wealth for he and his descendants. God didn't want the picture of redemption marred through a payment made to God for cleansing. You can't buy cleansing. You can't buy an adequate covering, God says. But Gehazi, the prophet's assistant, he's like us, guys. He knows God. He hears the Scriptures. He hears God's man saying God's words. And he's still trying to cobble together his own fig leaves. That's Gehazi. Jeremiah 45, it's interesting. Both of these examples are servants to prophets. And in Jeremiah 45, the servant's name is Baruch. Baruch's the guy that would write down what Jeremiah said. And again, second fiddle. Jeremiah is the man. Baruch's just the, the helper. And you remember, Jeremiah lives through the destruction of Jerusalem. He goes right through the end. Babylonians come in and take over, right? And God has said through Jeremiah over and over again, I'm destroying Judah. You guys are going down. No deliverance now. It's going to happen. But Baruch has something different on his mind. And the, the text doesn't tell us more than simply how, Elijah, how uh, Jeremiah, from God, speaks to Baruch. And he says this to Baruch, what I've built, I'm about to demolish. What I've planted, I'm about to uproot. The whole land. It's a time of destruction and judgment. As for you, do you seek great things for yourself? See, Baruch's just like Gehazi. He wants something better. He wants to be someone more important. Do you seek great things for yourself? Stop seeking. I'm about to bring disaster on every living creature. I'm going to grant you your life like the spoils of war wherever you go. Just like Gehazi. This is not the time, Baruch, for these things. I'm destroying. I'm not building up. Your dream can't come true. But I'm going to give you your life. Baruch was trying to establish a name for himself in a way God wasn't going to be a part of. Same thing. If you look, at, look in Luke 6.26, Jesus warned His followers there to beware when all men think well of you. He says, because they thought well of the false prophets. You know, typically, one of the ways we try and establish a name for ourselves is we want everyone to like us. So we cater what we say to different people so that that person will approve me. Then I change my message a little bit so the next person will approve me because I want everyone to like me because everyone else likes me. I can like myself. I'm okay. My fig leaves are adequate. But Jesus says, no. If everyone thinks well of you, you're just like the false prophets. It means you're catering what you say to everyone around you instead of to God Himself. 
So beware if everyone thinks you're a nice guy. And again, <clears throat> guys, for Christians, nice is not a biblical value. Most Christians I know want to be thought of as nice. Nice is not a Christian value. Nice does not apply. Kindness applies, absolutely. Grace, respect, absolutely. Courtesy, you bet. We want to be nice. God's not into nice. Nice is not a biblical value. Revelation 3, verse 1, Jesus was talking to the church at Sardis and He says, pointedly, He says, I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive. You have a name. You have a reputation. In the pagan world around you and among the other churches, you have a reputation that you're alive. You're a happening place. You know, if you want to see what God's doing, go to Sardis. And, and Jesus says there's just one problem with that, and none of it's true. Because you're dead. You're asleep. And He says to them later, wake up. Get in the game. You have a name, but you're posturing and you're posing. It's a reputation, but it's not even true. You've got a name for yourself, but it doesn't even apply. Tim Keller, pretty well-known pastor from New York City, large church there, author of many books. His latest one is called Every Good Endeavor. He says this about work, thinking of the same theme, fig leaves and inadequate coverings. He says, many modern people seek a kind of salvation, self-esteem and self-worth. And that's sort of what we're talking about here. That's what we're seeking through work. From career success, this leads us to seek only high-paying, high-status jobs and to worship them in perverse ways. That through my career, through my work, whatever that is, I'm going to find my fig leaf, my monument, my adequate covering. So for Christians, for God followers, unfortunately, so much of the time we're still acting like Gehazi and Baruch and false prophets and posing churches we're still trying to do what only God can do for us adequately. We're still seeking fig leaves and monuments. So, typically it's stuff like this. Am I handsome enough? Am I pretty enough? You know, for kids, kids and young adults, am I popular enough? Do the right people like me? And you know, it's interesting, just like the false prophets, if we have the approbation of people around us and that's our goal, do you know it makes us smaller, not bigger? It makes us less important, not more important? If we're catering to midgets like ourselves, they become our gods, our demigods, and we serve them. So they become big, we become small to serve them. So if you're a young person or a young adult, this is one of the, the greatest pitfalls to avoid as you're becoming a full-grown adult, and certainly applies to full-grown adults as well. But the approbation of others says nothing about what God can give us. The approbation of others, the approval of others, that the right people like me or approve me, this says nothing, ultimately, about having a real name or, or real adequacy or significance. Not a thing. Do I make enough money? Am I in the right circles? Do I have a job that other people look up to? You know, are the elements of my life, is the mix that is my life, is it adequate to give me a sense of adequacy and significance and that I count and that I'm okay? There are all kinds of temptations to sin in this world, 
But many of us, perhaps most of us, much of our life, we're trying to do something in our life to feel better about ourselves when God has an entirely better way. That brings us to Isaiah 56. If you've got your Bible, I don't think the text is in your study sheet. The reference may be, but you might want to turn there. Isaiah 56. God's solution to the need for acceptance and an adequate moral covering that liberates us to live life in a God-honoring, fulfilled, joyful, peaceful way. In Isaiah's day, again, Isaiah has a lot of messages of judgment. In fact, Isaiah 56 ends with the description of the tawdry leadership of the nation of Israel in, in Isaiah's day. And yet God through Isaiah singles out Gentiles and eunuchs to speak to about this issue of a name and adequacy and significance. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, this is what the Lord says, preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the man who does this. Anyone. It's open to everyone. This isn't qualified. Anyone can meet this. Anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. As we read through the passage, understand that faith towards God for the Jews in this passage is represented as covenant faithfulness. I believe in God, I I trust Yahweh, and that's represented by I honor Him in keeping the Sabbath or observing those other things God's called me to. So that's what we're seeing here. Covenant faithfulness. So they'll keep the Sabbath. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from His people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. In other words, I can't bear any fruit. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the foreigners, these are Gentiles, these are non-Jews, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, love the name of Yahweh, to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold firmly to My covenant, I will bring them to My holy mountain and let them rejoice in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. If you say to a person today that's poor, they don't have great looks, they they have no... No ability on their own to say, I'm significant. I'm adequate. I'm okay. I'm important. That's exactly who God's speaking to through Isaiah here. In Israel, Gentiles and eunuchs were the least likely in the nation to be able to have significance. And think of this for a minute. Start with Gentiles. Gentiles were often despised by Jews because they're not part of the covenant community. And though Israel was meant by God to be a city on a hill, a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, oftentimes in religious pride, they simply looked down on the Gentiles. You're not Jewish. You don't have standing with us as Gentiles, as non-Jews. Gentiles could not participate in temple worship. And temple worship was the center of being Jewish and relationship with God. 
If you couldn't participate in temple worship, you were always on the outside looking in. If you were an uncircumcised Gentile male, it didn't matter if you were in a Jewish home for Passover, you could not eat the meal. In fact, if you were at the Temple Mount in the Second Temple period, this would be the, the period that goes through Jesus to 70 A.D., there was a huge Temple Mount. When Herod enlarged the Temple, he made that flat area that the Dome of the Rock sits on today much bigger than it had been previously. Huge area. There was a short wall on that area. Short wall with signs all over it. And it said, if you're a Gentile and you pass this wall, you're dead. You see this come up in the story of Acts when Paul is back in Jerusalem. If you're a Gentile in Israel, you get the point. I'm a second-class citizen. I have absolutely no hope of significance and standing in God's covenant community. I'm unclean. I've got to stay away. So to the Gentiles, no hope of significance in Israel. To the Gentiles, God says... I'll bring them to my mountain. They'll rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. They're going to be in my house. God's house is the temple. So to the people that felt like I can never get close, I'll always be second class and second rate, God says, nope, not at all. You'll come and you'll be like a priest inside my house. There won't be a wall to keep you out. The circumcision won't be an issue. You're going to be inside my house just like a Jewish priest would be. And you'll be at my altar. You'll be accepted before me, celebrating in my presence at my altar just like anyone else. There will be no sense of second-class citizenship. It won't be like a Jew can stiff-arm you and say, I'm holier than you. God says to the Gentiles, through faith, You'll be inside. You won't be on the outside. You'll be on the inside. You'll be in the temple. You'll be at the altar. You'll have significance. You'll have adequacy. You'll be covered. You'll be one of mine. No division. No separation. You'll have status. And you'll have a name. Now it gets even better with eunuchs. You know, if you were uh, living in the time Isaiah wrote, uh, significant life basically meant this. I'm living in the land of promise. I'm in Israel. I'm married. I have a, a certain modicum or level of success. I have a, a house. I have enough food to eat. And the big deal is, I live a long time and I have a lot of kids. And hopefully I have a lot of sons. Because it's through my children that my name will live on. So how do I get a name in Israel? I have children. And they carry on my name. Now, if I'm a eunuch, what hope do I have of having significance in Israel? Where significance depends on me having children? I can't get there. Not only that, you know, even if you were born to the family of a high priest, you couldn't serve as a priest if you were a eunuch. You're on the outside looking in again. A eunuch had absolutely no hope of standing in Israel. None. And they could not get there. Impossible. So to the eunuchs, God says, who trust Him, who look to Him for a name. To the eunuchs, God says, I'm going to give you in my house, again, this is in the temple. His house is the temple. Within my walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, 
I'll give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Now, you can have a name that carries on through children, but how many generations remember you and I? You know, Ramsey's got a name. We can still read it today. I'll give him creds for that. You know, that's 2,500 years later. That's impressive. But you and I, I know my grandfather's name. That's as far as I go. If we have children by the third or fourth generation, aren't We're a memory, if that. So God says to the eunuchs who have no hope in themselves of significance, He says, I'm going to give you a name better than children. And your name's going to be on the wall of my house. An eternal name, eternal significance. So in Isaiah 56, God is saying to those who have no thought, no hope, no aspiration, that they can cobble together adequate fig leaves or monuments. They have no means of providing some sense of significance for themselves. God says, that's okay. I'm going to provide it for you. I'm going to give you a better name than you could ever have for yourself, an eternal and a lasting name. The solution to our inadequate attempts to give ourselves a name is to stand back and let God do that for us. And when we trust Christ, that's what we're doing. When we come to God and say, Lord, I realize I'm not what or who I should be. And I accept, I trust Jesus to cover my sins. I'm getting rid of my fig leaves. And to give me a name and significance, I'm not trying to do that anymore on my own. When we come to God in faith through Christ, that's really what we're doing, even if we don't feel the weight or the value of it later when He's given it. That is what we're about. So if God gives us a name, guys, we're good to go. And of course, historically, I'm going to wind down, sorry, here in a hurry, just for time's sake. Genesis 17, 15, Abram, an old guy with an old wife who can't have kids. The mighty father becomes the father of multitudes. Why? Because God changes his name and says, this is what I'm going to do. To Jacob, you remember Jacob gets a name changed too by God. You were the heel grabber, but now you'll be a prince of God. Because God gives him a name. Didn't get it for himself. God gave it. Think of Peter in the Gospels. Goes from Simon to Peter. Goes to a rock. Because Jesus renames him. You think of Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the apostle. Because he has a new name and a new identity. If God gives us a name, we're good to go. Uh, Tim Keller's book, by the way, just a great read in general about common forms of idolatry for Christians and about work specifically. Keller talks about this. Psalm 49. Don't be afraid when a man gets rich, when the wealth of his house increases. He dies. He takes nothing. His wealth won't follow him. He praises himself during his lifetime. And people will praise you when you do well for yourself. He says, still accurate today. He goes to the generation of his father's. A man with valuable possessions without understanding is like an animal that perishes. You know, so we're looking for lasting significance, but what happens when an animal dies? That's it. Animal's here, it's gone, it's over. God gives us lasting significance. To the church at Sardis, do let me pause on this one, because I love this. To the posing church that has a reputation and a name, but that hasn't earned it, couldn't get it anyway, Jesus says this, 
I'll not erase his name from the book of life. Your name will be the only place that really matters in the book of life. You belong to me. Got eternal life with me forever. And I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. You know, if you can only think of one point in the future, this would be the one to think about. You know, there's a day when each one of us, as Christ's followers, as those redeemed by Christ, we're going to stand in the courts of heaven. It won't be a dream. It won't be a great sci-fi movie. It'll be real. There'll be a moment when you're there. And Jesus says to those who have faith in Him, He says, amongst the myriads of myriads in the courts of heaven and among all the angelic hosts, I'm going to proclaim your name. Guys, that's significant. It doesn't get any better than that. So if we're thinking about our temptations today to try and fabricate for ourselves a name, those fig leaves or monuments, think of this point. Jesus says, you don't need to do that because when I get you home, I'm going to proclaim your name among the hosts of heaven to the angels of heaven. I'm going to be proclaiming your name. Now, do you guys have that other picture? Now, On his death, Ramses was buried in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings. You know, there's tomb raiders all along, not just movies, all along through history. His body was later moved to a royal cache where it was discovered in 1881 and is now on display in the Cairo Museum. So that is Ramses the Great. That's Ozymandias right here. Now, does this strike you as a little disrespectful? The guy who writes all that great stuff about himself Behold my works and tremble. So you just walk by his corpse in the museum. Oh, that's him. Wow. You know, what's for lunch? There he is. Okay. That's the guy who hoped the nations would tremble and remember him forever. That's him today. I think this is ironic. I think God preserved him so that we could look at him today and say, wow, that's him. Okay. Let me close quickly with Horace Smith's version of the same thing. Ozymandias. This is Shelley's friend, Smith, with a totally different take. In Egypt's sandy silence, all alone stands a gigantic leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, saith the stone. The king of kings, this mighty city shows the wonder of my hand. The city's gone. Not but the leg remaining to disclose the sight of this forgotten Babylon. Now to that point, to the middle of this sonnet, Smith and Shelley, they're together, aren't they? Because it's a modern man looking back, ironically, at the proud boast of this person who thought I'll be important forever. And that's all Shelley said, basically. But listen to Smith. Shelley looks back and says, that's so funny, the irony. You thought you'd last forever, and you're just rubble in the sand in a third-rate country. Smith looks forward. Second half. We wonder, and some hunter may express wonder like ours, when through the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragments huge and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. Smith got it. I don't know if Shelley got it or not. Smith got it. Ramsey in his day says, I've got adequate fig leaves, guys. They're on the stones, statues everywhere. I'm good to go. Shelley's day, that looks back and says, what a joke. You're rubble in Egypt. 
The sand's just blowing over you. Smith takes it a step further. He says, oh, you know what? Gosh, maybe that'll be us. Maybe in the future, London, this powerful entity in its day, wow, maybe in the future, it'll be rubble. And all of us who, just like those living in Babylon, thought we were significant because we live in London in the 1800s, and that's how we find our significance. Well, wow. Maybe a millennia from now, people will come through this, and it'll be a waste place, and they'll say, what a joke. wonder who lived here. wonder what their corpse looks like. He got it. See, and for us, we've got to have done with trying to put together our own fig leaves. Ramses couldn't get there. All the wealth of the world, you can't get there. Psalm 49, you can't get there. You want a name? You want significance? Do you want to know absolutely that your shame, your sin, your inadequacy is covered? You come to Christ. You say to God, Lord, would you give me a name? You show me what significance looks like. And God says, I'll give you a name. Be a better name, better reputation. You'll be remembered, not for a time, not for a lifetime, not for a generation. You'll be remembered forever. Your name will be in my halls, in my palace, in my kingdom. Guys, only God can do that for us. And He does it through Jesus Christ. When we call on the name that's above every other name in faith, God gives us a name, a new identity, adequacy, and significance. Father, we just want to humbly bow before You and and confess again that we, Lord, with anything we have, anything we are, we are inadequate apart from You. Lord, thank You so much that though we cannot gain adequacy through any merit, anything we bring, You have fully clothed us in righteousness, Lord, in Christ, and given us a name, adequacy, significance. Father, my prayer for each of us here today is that we would so fully know that and embrace it, that we'd be liberated to live a life motivated out of a desire to honor You your son Jesus did in his days on the earth, we could glorify our Father in heaven. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father in heaven. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.